I don't feel that, that I go back, would go back and do something differently. But I, I, I did find uh, that I had to go out of my way to get many physicians to give me as much attention as I felt my, my illness deserved. And it was a slow process in getting a diagnosis. Now, maybe I was in the way because I had very strong opinions about what kind of workup I wanted. I had this misconception that it might be Parkinson's disease. Uh, so uh, I'm, I, I got excellent medical care, but only because I was a partner in that care. Not otherwise specified has always been one of my favorite phrases in medicine. Not just because it's a fancy way of saying we don't really understand the root cause of something, but also because it captures the human impulse to put tidy labels on things that remain largely unknown. In NOS, I talk with some of medicine's most innovative thinkers to probe some of these messy unknowns behind our healthcare system, its players, and the stories that shape their lives. NOS makes time for the types of in-depth conversations that may not leave us with easy answers, but that shed fresh light on medicine's toughest challenges, as well as the people envisioning its future. I'm Lisa Rosenbaum, and you're listening to Not Otherwise Specified from the New England Journal of Medicine. So today's episode is a bit of an unusual one. My guest today is my uncle, Richard Rosenbaum. Richard is a neurologist. He attended Harvard College and Harvard Medical School, and he did his neurology training at UCSF and NIH, and then he practiced neurology in Portland, Oregon for 45 years. He's also a writer. He's written some books, one about the clinical neurology of rheumatic diseases, one about carpal tunnel syndrome, and another about Parkinson's disease. But he's also done some more recent writing that we're gonna to discuss today. Writing that's also about neurology, but in a way that's both clinical and deeply personal. I brought Richard on the show today to talk about what he's been going through the last few years as he's been experiencing his own progressive neurological disease. You'll hear as he speaks that he has some dysarthria related to his illness, but I think you'll be able to understand what he's saying. Hi, Uncle Ricky. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Welcome to Not Otherwise Specified. So why don't we start by having you present your diagnostic odyssey as you presented it about a year ago when you saw a neurosurgeon in January of 2022. Okay, well, I'm a 76-year-old left-handed neurologist. And about Valentine's of 2018, I was bike riding on, on hills in Marin County, just north of San Francisco, when I lost control of the bike and crashed. And I landed on my right side, my right cheek hit the ground, my right shoulder hit the ground. I was not knocked out and did not hurt the helmet. And immediately I had tingling in my right thumb. And very shortly after that, I had tingling in my left thumb. And I called to my writing partner and I said, 
call an ambulance. I have central cord syndrome. And if you want later, I can tell you why I was so concerned about that. So I was taken to the hospital and I had a number of imaging studies and I had six rib fractures, a fractured clavicle, a thoracic compression fracture, and a very tight spinal stenosis at C3-4 without visible cord damage. I was transferred to UCSF where I had a laminectomy and laminoplasty at C with the cord decompressed at C3. At that, at that time, I had a lot of pain from all my fractures. I had very severe bilateral lateral forearm pain. And it it was incredibly sensitive to touch. I would call it allodynia because very light touch caused me a lot of pain. At that time, I spent a lot of time with the pain service trying to control that pain. And it abated somewhat, but never fully went away. I still have it. Uh, at the time, my only other neurologic problem was that I had a very mild right hyperreflexia. And I went through rehab for a couple of months and I made an incredible recovery. And by May 1st, I was back at work. So within 10 weeks. Uh, I then uh, did well until early 2021 when I noticed that I was having trouble balancing on my left foot. And the way I noticed that was that every day when I brush my teeth, I stand on my left eight foot for 30 seconds while the toothbrush schedules. And I've been doing that for years. When I had my injury in 2018, I lost that ability and I got it back during my rehab. And I was doing great. I was walking five miles a day. I was nearly asymptomatic except for my arms and a little bit of back pain. But suddenly in early 2021, I had trouble bouncing on my left foot. And over the next few months, I noticed a number of other problems. I had trouble getting off the toilet. I was a bit of a weightlifter, not heavy weights, but suddenly when I was curling 15, 25 pounds, I couldn't do the fifth curl with my left arm. Uh, when I went to play basketball, my hook shot wasn't anymore. <laughs> and in, in July, I was hiking on the beach walking on the beach with my friend who's a physician, and we were talking about assessing quality of care. And I said to him, one thing that neurologists have to do to, to give quality care is ask every patient about falls. And we are talking about fall assessment and being sure that everybody in the office was doing that with each patient. We turned off the beach and started to walk on a narrow path on the dune 
and I tripped and I fell into the beach grass. And my mm. friend said, well, that's one. Oh. <laughs> and so uh, I, over the next couple of months, I had another fall in August. And in August, I developed a left foot drop. And I, I, I can't, I've been thinking back on it. I can't tell you why it took me over six months to finally see somebody about all these accumulating problems, but they were so subtle. I wasn't, I wasn't afraid to see a doctor. I just had sort of a reluctance to bother because things were so mild. But, but once I had the foot drop, I knew I had to see somebody. And I was sitting and I was thinking about all the video visits I did during COVID. I saw over a thousand patients with video visits. And I, when I examined them, I noticed that I couldn't get them to do their tendon reflexes except for their knee jerks. Everybody could do their own knee jerks. I could watch it on the, on the screen. And so I checked my knee jerks and I noticed that my left knee jerk was brisk, brisker than my right. And then I did another reflex that maybe everyone doesn't know called a cross adductor, which is that I tapped the inside of my knee. And when I tapped the inside of my left knee, my right leg adducted. And that's a clear sign of hyperreflexia. And I said, well, maybe this is a spinal problem and I'll see a spine surgeon. And that's when I started to see doctors in September of 2021. So you thought maybe you had a spinal problem and then, you know, you are also, you are an expert on Parkinson's disease and both your father and uncle had Parkinson's disease. And there's obviously a genetic link and you always knew that you would be at high risk for Parkinson's disease or higher risk. Was there a point at which you thought you had Parkinson's disease during all of this? So I saw the spine surgeon, and I did have some abnormalities in my spinal cord, but I wasn't convinced that they explained everything that was wrong. And I really did have a Parkinson's phobia. The fact that it ran in my family meant that I was probably five times more likely to get than the average person. My sense of smell wasn't great, which is a risk factor. I had been developing a little constipation, which is a risk factor. I'd had a resection of a melanoma in situ, and melanoma, people with melanoma are about twice as likely to have Parkinson's. So uh, I had a number of reasons to think that I might have Parkinson's. So even though I was going through the spinal evaluation, I went to a Parkinson's specialist to be sure I didn't have Parkinson's. I, I was, the, the most subtle sign of Parkinson's is bradykinesia, which you look for by having a person open and close their hand quickly. And I, with my patients every day, I demonstrated that to them. And I knew I didn't have the bradykinesia. So, but I went to the Parkinson's specialist anyway, and he, honored my phobia, and I already had an MRI brain scan. He also ordered a DAT scan. And the, I, 
the day before the death scan, I was convinced myself that I was going to have Parkinson's in addition to my spinal cord problem, but the death scan was negative. So I spent the rest of of 2021 pursuing the spinal problem, and when the doctors in Portland uh, didn't have a solution, I went to see a spine surgeon at UCSF. So what happened in January of 2022 when you saw that spine surgeon? Well, uh, first of all, let me, let me take one more detour, which is that, that I had told my story to an, another neurologist of my generation uh, who had called me about another patient. And I said, let me tell you about my problem. And I told him because he is a ALS specialist, runs an ALS clinic. And he said, well, I can't tell you, you don't have ALS. So I went to a neuromuscular neurologist, had an EMG. In fact, I had three EMGs by this point and none of the EMGs looked like ALS. So I saw the spine surgeon and the spine surgeon said, I think you have dynamic compression of your spinal cord. Even though we can't see compression on the MRI, when you move your neck, you're probably compressing intermittently. And, and I showed my MRI to three spine surgeons in Portland and they all poo-pooed the idea. But this guy in San Francisco said, I take care of this a lot, I'm very familiar with the condition. And I said, well, you're the smartest guy in the room <laughs> or you're a cowboy, but I'll take a chance on you because I have very little to lose. The surgery's not, not that dangerous. And I had another laminectomy in February of 2022, about four years after my first cervical laminectomy, and I didn't get better. I was back at work in a week. The surgery was not hard on me, but I didn't get better. And I talked to the spine surgeon again in March. He ordered an MRI of my thoracic spine be sure there was not an additional spine problem. And then he said, well, maybe you should see another neurologist for another neurologic opinion. So did you get worse? I was slowly getting worse. I was getting worse month by month. On, on my iPhone, uh, there's a, a gadget that measures the asymmetry of your gait. And I have a graph that shows that week by week by month, my left side was getting more and more impaired with my gait. So in March of, in February of 2022, I first started to have, use a walker part-time. I was using a cane. I was still going to work, but uh, I was, I was impaired. I was seeing the physical therapist every week doing exercises aggressively, but it seemed like every few weeks we had to modify to easier exercises because it was deteriorating. And the deterioration was not only in my left leg, but also my left arm. 
when my left finger started to flex, and I'm left-handed, I lost the ability to write. And one of the things that just drove me crazy is because of the flexion, my fingers putting on gloves to examine my patients, it became extremely difficult. That must have been so hard. Right. And you couldn't do it via telemedicine. Well, I, I did some by telemedicine, but it was really after the first year of, of the pandemic, getting starting to see some patients in person again was wonderful because uh, telemedicine has great advantages, but it doesn't really replace a full examination. What was going on in your mind in terms of what you thought was wrong with you when it became clear that you didn't seem to have dynamic cord compression insofar as trying to fix it didn't make you better and that you were still getting worse? My surgery was in February 2022, and I was continuing to get worse. And again, motor neuron disease was in the background of possibilities, but I had these three EMGs which hadn't shown it. So I was, I was really puzzled. And one, one key issue was my voice. I, if you, I have a little dysarthric, you may hear that. And I had noticed for three or four years that my voice would, would uh, fatigue in the afternoon. And I was really concerned about whether my voice was a sign that I had neurologic deterioration above my spinal cord. And I went to see a uh, ultralaryngologist who specialized in voice. And I, uh, I, he, they did a video of my vocal cords. He examined my, my pharynx, my tongue, no fasciculations, no atrophy. I asked him to check my jaw jerk. And he said, gee, I haven't done these in a long time. Your jaw jerk. Yeah. Well, the jaw, you know, if, you, if your jaw jerks increase, that's a sign of, of bilateral upper border and loss of control of, of, of the masseter muscles. And so uh, my jaw jerk was not increased. He said, well, you have an old vocal cords. And so I went to the, another neurologist, and, and the neurologist did another EMG, again looking for ALS. And I, I by the way, have a mild peripheral neuropathy, which doesn't seem connected to any of this, but he didn't find evidence of, AL, of lower neuron dysfunction that would be suggestive ALS. But one thing that he did do, which is important as part of the LS examination, is an EMG of my tongue. Uh, that sounds gruesome. And I have done it to many people and always reluctant to do it. I was amazed at how little discomfort was associated with it. And he was inserted for below, right? right below your mandible in the tongue muscle. And he said that I did not have 
lower motor neuron dysfunction in my tongue. So, you know, a tongue with people with ALS can be atrophic and fasciculating. I did not have lower motor neuron dysfunction. But the thing that he found was that uh, when I moved my tongue to the left, I did not fire the motor units as quickly as I should, which is a sign of upper motor neuron dysfunction. So he was convinced that I had something going on with my upper motor neurons. He made three suggestions. One, that I have another MRI brain scan. One, that I see a neurodegenerative disease specialist looking for something like cortical basal ganglion degeneration, and one that I see an ALS specialist. And the ALS specialist said she believed I had primary lateral sclerosis. The neurodegenerative disease specialist got COVID and never saw me. But that was okay because the, the ALS specialist said she was 90% sure that it was PLS. And we did the MRI brain scan. It showed a little bit of extra iron deposition in my right motor strip, which is occurs in a, some percentage of people with motor neuron disease as the uh, upper motor neurons deteriorate. And uh, in retrospect, that had been present in my MRI from the fall of 2021, and its importance had been overlooked. So the combination of my tongue, my voice, and my MRI with the progressive problems on my left side fit the diagnosis of primary lateral sclerosis. Will you tell us what that is? Well, primary lateral sclerosis is a neurodegenerative disease of the upper motor neuron with, with little or no involvement of lower motor neurons. So it's a, a relative of ALS. And it has a much better prognosis than ALS. People can live with, with PLS for 20 years. Uh, the PLS was first described by Charcot, who also described ALS. He actually described PLS first. And the typical person has bilateral leg involvement. And I was atypical in having a left hemiparesis rather than bilateral leg. But, but that is not incompatible with the diagnosis. So when, when the ALS specialist said, said I had PLS, 90% sure, I, I was a little bit cynical about her certainty. And first of all, it's very unusual for a neurologic diagnosis when you first make it to be 90% sure. When a neurologist tells you you have Parkinson's disease, he's wrong 30% of the time. And, and good, good care of Parkinson's is reassessing the diagnosis at least once a year to see if you're right. And so uh, I said to her, 
I'm not sure it's PLS because it's going so fast. It's so asymmetric. She said, well, you're lucky this is PLS, which has a much better prognosis than ALS. But because, uh, because PLS is a motor neuron disease, it's usually cared for in ALS clinics. And I began to go to an ALS clinic here in Portland. So I want to just pause for a second and talk a little bit about your father, my grandfather. So both of us have in our blood an impulse to write about illness, our own experiences with illness. So your father wrote a book called The Taste of My Own Medicine, which was about his experience practicing rheumatology for 50 years, right? And then getting laryngeal cancer, which he was cured of. Um, But once he was cured, he found it really difficult to go back to medicine because in some ways it had really let him down despite being cured. And so he wrote A Taste of My Own Medicine, which ended up getting made into the movie The Doctor, starring William Hurt. And one of the motivations for Papa of writing the book was to reflect on things that he wished he had done better. Have you found, as a patient, that it's made you think about the way you also treated patients and things you wish you could have changed? Well, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect physician. And uh, I certainly have made my mistakes over the years. But, but I took a certain pride in listening to people carefully and paying a lot of attention to them. And, and I don't feel that I go back, would go back and do something differently. But I, I, I did find uh, that I had to go out of my way to get many physicians to give me as much attention as I felt my, my illness deserved. And it was a slow process in getting a diagnosis. Now, maybe I was in the way because I had very strong opinions about what kind of workup I wanted. I had this misconception it might be Parkinson's disease. Uh, so uh, I'm, I, I got excellent medical care, but only because I was a partner in that care. So then what happened? You start going to the ALS clinic. You're given a diagnosis of PLS. What happens as the year went on, 2022? Well, there's really a swing in my story. The the story to July 2022 is a search for a diagnosis. And from July on, it's learning to live with progressive disability. Because every week or two, I'm a little bit worse. And when I retired from my own practice on June 30th, 2022, I would walk up to the exam room with the walker, but I'd leave the walker outside the exam room. I'd be able to steady myself at the computer. I'd be able to to examine a person after I struggled to get the glove on. Uh, But uh, as the last six or seven months have gone on, I went for using a walker more and more to now spend most of my time in a electric wheelchair. Uh, 
uh, my left arm has become more useless uh, and I had progressive problems. Uh, my voice has gotten worse and I'm doing voice exercises. I'm just starting to have a little bit of difficulty swallowing liquids, which gives me concern about my future swallowing ability. I'm, uh, transfer, I can transfer, but in the last couple of weeks, I found that you're much better with the caregiver in the morning. Tell me with my transfer that I've been getting dressed and showering. So I'm becoming more and more uh, dependent on, on help from others. In what you sent me that you wrote, you describe some of these challenges. And there's one scene that I found particularly poignant and also really highlights, I think, some of the challenges that are pretty unique to this disease and what you're going through. So I'm going to read that. Um, it's about having to get up in the middle of the night to pee. You have urinary frequency, which is very common among men your age. And I'm just going to read it for you, okay? Let me, let me say two things. I appreciate you reading it for me. One is I think I wrote this about September. Right. And, and things are worse now. And the other one is that my urinary frequency is not only older folk positism, but also a neurogenic bladder, which is part of my neurologic illness. Okay. I'll read it, and then we can talk about what's happened since, okay? Okay, great. So it's titled Nightly Challenges, September 5th, 2022. I wake up in the dark and need to pee. This happens at least once a night to most men my age, due to prostate problems. I look at the clock and am delighted that it is after 3 a.m. I've slept four hours before needing to get up, which means that I'll probably only get up once before morning. Some nights I am worse, getting up every two hours. My first challenge is that my left hand is painful and tingling. My carpal tunnel syndrome has recently worsened. I need to shake out my hand until it feels reliable enough to remove my CPAP mask, then help me out of bed. The next issue is standing up. Fortunately, I've now installed a two foot wide railing on the side of my bed. I can grab the rail and pull myself up. I learned to do this from my niece, who's an occupational therapist, and went through my house with me suggesting safety adaptations. If I didn't have the rail, I would have to wake Lois, who's your wife, to help me get up. I hold onto my walker with both hands as I slowly hobble to the bathroom. I now have grab bars on both sides of the toilet. A couple weeks ago, I fell against the toilet in the middle of the night when I was not careful about steadying myself with the grab bars. The spasticity in my left arm makes it hard to lift and makes my fingers curl. I use my right hand to uncurl my left fingers and lift them up to the grab bar. Once in place, my left grip is still strong. I wish I could move faster with the walker because my neurological problem causes a sense of urgency and threatens loss of bladder control. I wish I could sit down on the toilet quickly. I'm too unsteady to pee standing up. Holding onto the bars, I carefully lower myself to the toilet seat. Even with help from the grab bars, my leg muscles are too weak so that I plop down the last couple of inches. I fear bruising my bottom where intact skin is so important to prevent infection. Getting off the toilet is the next challenge. 
Using the grab bars, I need to inch myself forward to the edge of the seat and then carefully pull myself up. I very carefully lean my weight forward until I can straighten my sore right knee and have enough balance to grab my walker and let go of the grab bars. I readjust my leg position, feet wide apart, so that I have enough balance to let go of the walker for a few seconds while I pull up my underwear. Going back to bed, I inch slowly with the walker, trying my best not to catch my left toes with each step. I sit back down on the bed, steadying myself with my side rail. I sleep on the right side of the bed. I experimented with the help of the occupational therapist and learned it's easier for me to swing my legs up from the right side than from the left. My left leg is so clumsy that I cannot get it fully into the bed, so I need to make a brisk movement with my right leg to create the momentum to pull my legs under the sheets. Most nights, I'm exhausted by this process and quickly fall back to sleep. But tonight I am discouraged and lie in bed composing this list of my frustrations. Each trip to the toilet, which used to take a minute or two, now takes 10 or 15 minutes. But I'm thankful that I can still do it alone and do not yet need a urinal, condom catheter, bedside commode, or assistance from, from my wife for this nightly ritual. As I write this paragraph, I worry about some future time when I will read it with nostalgia for lost independence. Oh, well, the nostalgia is yes. there. I, I now use a urinal in bed rather than do that. And I can't get out of bed without someone's help. So for a long time, you're married to my aunt Lois. Lois is an attorney and has been by your side for all of this and is an extremely devoted caretaker. Absolutely. And you guys have a beautiful love. You always have had a beautiful love. I don't want to make you too emotional, but it's okay. <laughs> if you okay. are. What, what has it been like for Lois? Well, uh, it's incredibly hard for her. She has to do. I we used to. I used. I won't say that I ever did half the chores, but I used to be helpful with the cleaning, with the cooking, with doing the dishes. I can't do any of that now. I just sit and watch her do all those things, and she has to worry about about me and about my future needs. It's it's very anxiety provoking and stressful for her. But she's been amazing. So between September and November, what happened? Well, I, every week or two, I was just a little bit worse. And uh, I began to use the walker more and more. I um, I think I didn't get my electric wheelchair until December. But, but uh, I just became... Less, less able to do things independently, more and more asking for help being dressed, for help getting off the toilet. I was slowly getting And what worse. were you thinking during this time? Well, uh, I was aware that I could worsen, but uh, I was... Um, 
I was I was wondering whether I should, even though we were calling the illness PLS rather than ALS, I was wondering whether it was really, really ALS and whether I should take some of the medications that can slow the progress of ALS. And what did you decide? Well, f finally in November, after going to the ALS clinic and talking to the ALS specialist, I decided it was time to start those medications. Okay. So the title of what you sent me is called Numbness. And you begin by defining numbness and you say it's either a physical or emotional loss of sensation. And one of the most interesting and touching parts of what you sent is that even as your body has gone numb, in many ways the opposite has happened to you emotionally. And during the last third or so of what you write, you're trying to figure out where, whether you have pseudobulbar palsy or also referred to as affective incontinence, which is a little bit of loss of control of emotion. And I want to read a passage from Thanksgiving when, when you're sort of thinking about this. And this was Thanksgiving three months ago of, of 2022, okay? Okay. Can I, can I preface that, Lisa, by saying that that uh, so it's emotional incontinence, which is also called pseudobulbar affect, which is can occur in people with pseudobulbar palsy. I see. Uh, and and it's quite common in people with motor neuron disease, but can occur in other neurologic conditions, and it's so common in in. Uh, in motor neuron disease that as part of a routine examination, when I first saw the ALS specialist in July, she asked me a number of questions to see if I had an emotional incontinence. And I really did not register on her scale as having emotional incontinence, but I believed that it was starting. And how did it I, manifest then? Well, I just had... I had more trouble telling jokes. So so I'd start to tell a joke, and as I'd tell the joke, I would laugh too soon. <laughs> so I was I was at the physical therapist and I was sitting as as is appropriate, all the chairs in the physical therapy waiting room have good arms. And I I said to the therapist something that I just thought of, which is, uh, when I was in high school, I was horrible at gymnastics, but now I'm doing handstands. <laughs> and as I, as, I told, as I told her this, you know, I, as I'm doing now, I was laughing <laughs> before the punchline, and it's hard, hard to tell the joke. So I, I believed that I was developing emotional incontinence. But my wife said, uh, it'd be good for you to be a little bit more emotional. Yes, I think for people who don't know you, it's fair to say that you are 
loving, but I would never have described you as emotionally effusive. I think you you tend to be on more the reserved and stoic side. Is that fair? Fair enough. <laughs> okay, but you tell great jokes. Did she think that was funny? The handstand <laughs> joke? <laughs> I was laughing so much I couldn't tell. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read about Thanksgiving. It's called Thanksgiving Emotions, November 2022. We had a joyous family Thanksgiving. My brother-in-law, sister-in-law, niece, nephew, grandniece, and grandnephews came to Portland for a week from California, Colorado, and Michigan. We all went to the beach with my children and grandchildren. It was our biggest reunion since the COVID epidemic began and we celebrated with 18 people around the dinner table with abundant conversation, games, and walks with beautiful views of the ocean. I was able to enjoy this sitting in my chair at the table or joining the walks with my new electrical wheelchair. With all the good times, I took care not to let my emotional incontinence show. My family watched me walking very slowly with my walker and they gave me a boost when I needed help arising from a chair. Being circumspect and polite, no one asked me about my diagnosis or prognosis. I was thinking that this might be the last time they saw me out of a wheelchair, or even the last time they saw me at all. I was guessing that they might have the same thoughts, but we did not talk about it. I now had no doubt about my limited emotional control. This was the week of the mass shooting at the LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs. Reading the morning paper about the retired army major who tackled and brought down the killer. I burst out sobbing as I read each paragraph. I would regain my composure, start to read another paragraph and start crying again. I was glad that I was reading by myself and keeping my emotional incontinence to myself. My seven-year-old grandnephew saw all the bamboo in my garden and made up a joke that I loved. What does a ghost panda say? Answer, bamboo. I don't, I don't know if that's funny. Okay, I, <laughs> I often repeated the joke when I met someone over the weekend and I was able to do so without losing control of my laugh. Maybe that means the joke was really not that funny. <laughs> I, th I think that might be true. <laughs> so, Richard, what has it been like for you to feel so much and then be trying to keep it to yourself? Well, let, let me be clear that emotional incontinence is brought up by minimal emotion. So uh, there were in the journal on January 5th, there was a perspective article about ableism. And uh, it was very well written about a speech therapist experience with her uncle, but it was not personal to me, and yet it made me cry. That's the emotional incontinence, minimal emotion bringing out a lot of affect. So that's, that clearly I have that, but it has nothing to do with whether I am really 
what I'm anxious about or what I'm depressed about. And, and so I'm constantly thinking when, when I have tears or when I get discouraged, am I depressed? And, and I, don't, I don't believe that I am. Uh, I, I, you know, there's a questionnaire called the PHQ-9 that a lot of primary care physicians use to screen their patients for depression. It has its strengths and weaknesses, but I gave myself a PHQ-9. I didn't score as depressed. When my neurologist, after I was depressed, I told him about my PHQ-9 <laughs> scale. I, <laughs> I doubt that many patients do that. But, but more important, when I'm sitting still, I'm very functional. I can write, I can play games, I can talk to people, I enjoy meals. I, during the day, I am, I am not depressed and I have a lot of joy in my life. And so I think, I'm, I think there's a real distinction between a realistic understanding that I'm going to get worse, some anxiety about how to best plan for that, but not enough that I am clinically anxious and, uh, and those concerns, and yet being able to get a lot of joy from my life and my family and my wife, and and feel that that you can be you can be realistic about a frightening future without being depressed about it. I'm just thinking about what you said because you make it sound so easy, <laughs> but I don't think it would be easy for a lot of people. What's happened since November and has it changed your conception of your diagnosis? Well, again, I, I believe that I really do have ALS rather than PLS. And one not only because of how fast I've progressed, but also because in the last couple of weeks, I've noticed some atrophy in my right hand intrinsic muscles, which would speak to more lower motor involvement. And when I go to ALS clinic in February, I anticipate that we, depending upon my physical exam, shows I, it may be clear that I have ALS, or I may need another EMG to really confirm that. And from a practical point of view, I'm spending more time in the, in the, in the electric chair. I'm having more help with transfers. I now need a caregiver uh, almost every morning to take my shower and get dressed. I'm, I still, once, once, I, once I get dressed, I'm up and going for the day and I'm productive and enjoying myself, but I um, keep wondering what's next. When am I going to stop being able to transfer? Uh, what other challenges are in the future? Do you have advice for other doctors based on what you've gone through? It's, it's so personal. I, 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 what one thing that 
embarrasses me as I go, as I write down my story and look back at it, is how reluctant I have been to seek medical care for it. And I certainly, I have done myself no damage. I didn't have an illness that if it were diagnosed earlier would have been treated better. But I certainly would not encourage other people to be as reluctant to talk to their physicians about minor symptoms. What about though for physicians who might listen? Do you, I know there have been frustrations with the exam or times where you felt like you weren't getting straight answers? When I saw a neurologist who, the one who found that my tongue was not working right and who first suspected that I had PLS. And I asked him what he thought about the diagnosis. He said, I, I don't want to give you a diagnosis, tell you my thought. I don't, I don't have thoughts yet because I want to be careful not to have cognitive bias. And I was really bothered by that because the idea of cognitive bias, and you know much more about this than I do, is that, that if you make decisions too fast, you sometimes don't think about things. But if you think about things carefully, make a good differential diagnosis, you're much less likely to have cognitive bias. So he had to have a differential diagnosis, and he was reluctant to share it with me. And I think that was an error on his part. I think when you have bad news to give people, or you suspect you're going to have bad news to give people, you should introduce that topic early in the discussion so that people can kind of process a little bit. Because the first time you say something, if you don't give a patient a warning and they come in and you say you have this horrible neurologic disease, they're so overcome with the idea they can't listen to the rest of the conversation. But if instead you started the discussion early on, it's much easier to do it. And so I, I thought that he was unartful in doing that. And when I was talking to my friend, Larry, the same guy tripped, who said that's the first fall about that, who we were talking about that, he called my attention to a classic article in the journal from 1975 called Pascal's Wager or, or Hanging Crepe, which is a really good discussion of the pros and cons of, of prime people for bad news and how you can do it wrong and rely upon that too much. So uh, that's something that, that I've thought about in the way physicians relate to people who have serious illnesses. I am reminded as you tell the story, didn't you end up getting a referral to an ALS clinic after that encounter, but there was no mention to you ever of ALS? Yeah, right. I, I hope I hope he wouldn't do that to anybody else. I hope that he just assumed that I was a neurologist and figured that out. But it was kind of, they like, may call me up and say, oh, by the way, you're going to ALS clinic. Wow. Okay. I think that's really helpful to hear because I know that I actually sometimes am probably not great about that because 
well, I see patients only in, in, in the hospital setting, but, you know, I never, I never know what they know if, especially if I'm on the consult service and I sometimes evade having to give bad news. So it, it helps me personally to hear you say that. I want to read, uh, one last entry. Um, you wrote it on January 17th, 2023, which is 17 is the Rosenbaum lucky number. And January 17th was your mother's birthday, my grandmother's birthday. And I'm going to read that. Okay. Please. The upper motor neurons are not the only brain cells that control the lower motor neurons. There are other neurons in the brainstem that also need connections down the spinal cord to control the lower motor neurons. When the upper neurons die, as mine are gradually doing, these brainstem neurons still provide some movement of the limbs by influencing the lower motor neurons. There's a very typical posture called the decorticate posture that develops after death of the upper neurons. In the decorticate posture, the affected arm flexes at the wrists and fingers. The hand tends to the palm down position. The leg straightens and tends to move inward so the knees come together. The ankle flexes down so the toes point down. My left arm and leg, and now increasingly my right leg, are assuming this decorticate posture. One advantage is that my left grip and left bicep strength are pretty well preserved, so I can still use my left arm on my walker or on a grab bar. If I had full-blown ALS, the lower motor neurons controlling my biceps and finger flexors would eventually die. I would lose the decorticate posture. As I slowly worsen, my decorticate posture has become more pronounced in the last couple of weeks. Because my fingers of my left hand are perpetually flexed, I have to use my right hand to carefully pry them open and put them in position around the grab bar. It's harder to spread my legs apart whether standing up or lying in bed. Once I was trying to use the urinal in bed, but my legs automatically came together, crushing the urinal. This slow progression is occurring even though I take the Rilazole and have been on Radicava? How do I say it? Radicava for nearly two weeks. I am needing more help up from my chair or the toilet and, and like somebody to stand closely behind me on the infrequent occasion that I walk very far with my walker. I'm spending more and more of my time in the electric wheelchair. I'm thinking about my deterioration particularly now because today would have been my mother's 105th birthday. She died when she was 94. I'm so glad that she's not alive to watch the progression of my illness because that would have caused her much more anxiety and suffering than it causes me. <sighs> Richard, there's, I've asked you this before, but I'm gonna ask you this again. You have been so brave through all of this and you have been so full of hope and i don't mean hope in the sense that you haven't been realistic about your prognosis or what's to come you are as realistic and pragmatic as anyone i know 
But I do mean hope in the sense that you seem to have been able to live every day and still enjoy all the things that you can still do that you love. And to me, that is the essence of hope. It is the opposite of despair. And it has been so awe-inspiring to watch. Do, do you feel like that's a choice you make or do you think it's just who you are? Well, a lot, thank you, Lisa. A lot of people have said, use the word courage to talk about the way I've reacted. I don't feel any courage at all. I just think it, I'm fortunate to have a personality that has a lot of equanimity and a lot of optimism and that I also have the ability to intellectualize so that the process of writing about my condition is therapeutic for me, makes me think about it, makes it easier to endure. This, the same thing was true of my, is true of my myelopathic, neuropathic pain in my forearms, which is still there. And, and I get a certain satisfaction from understanding its neuroanatomy, from having insight into how it affects my patients so that I can live with it without taking medication and, and without paying it much attention. So that, that uh, uh, thinking about things for me is a very strong and effective defense me mechanism. Is there anything else that you want to say that you want to have the chance to say to people? No, I just appreciate the opportunity to tell my story, which for me, the opportunity to talk about it is very therapeutic. My guest is my uncle, Richard Rosenbaum. As you heard, Richard spent decades caring for people with neurological disease. But as much as one can master any field, there will always be parts of medicine that can only be understood from the perspective of the patient. In November of 2022, based upon both the nature of his illness and the rate of its progression, Richard was officially diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, and they waited a few months before sharing his diagnosis with others. I'm grateful to Richard for coming on today and sharing his story with us and for giving me some jokes to ponder and for showing me that hope and pragmatism can actually be two sides of the same coin. Because this is our last episode of the first season of Not Otherwise Specified, I also want to take a moment and thank all of the guests who made the time to come on and talk to me. It's honestly a huge privilege for me to get to talk to these people, and it means a whole lot to me that any of you listened. I hope you learned as much from them as I have.